Right. Well, I still got to preach a sermon, so come on back. <laughs> Thought maybe this was it. This is great. I have time for breakfast still. <laughs> there, are, there are far, far better things ahead of us than anything that we leave behind. And that, that is good because there's, there's things in our lives that, are so, that seem so dark and so hopeless. And if anyone knew that, it had to have been Mary Magdalene after the crucifixion of Jesus. I want us to look at the resurrection from her perspective this morning. And we're going to start in John chapter 20 in verse 1. It says that early on Sunday morning, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb. Now it was still dark because it was early in the morning. She was there uh, before the sun had come up, but it was also certainly dark for her. You got to remember, this is a woman who was at the crucifixion. She saw her Lord be crucified and tortured and suffer in such a way. Maybe you've heard the term uh, dark night of the soul. It's uh, used to describe a time when you may feel like you're in a spiritual desert. It's just an extremely painful life, a painful time in your life, and you feel distant from God. I imagine that's exactly what Mary felt on that morning. Jesus had cast seven demons out of her that had tortured her for years. He had cared for her and showed her that she was loved and valued by God, and now Jesus was gone. I think it was more than just grief for her. I think she probably was a little disillusioned with Jesus as well. And some of us in this room today may be feeling that. Maybe you're here, you're present, you look nice, it's great, you're here, it's Easter Sunday. And yet, if you were honest, you'd say, you know, I've got to be honest, I'm a little disillusioned with the Lord today. For her, you know, Jesus was supposed to have been the long-awaited Messiah. Now he's dead. She had to have been furious with the religious leaders who were so jealous of Jesus that they they plotted to have him killed. The Roman soldiers who brutalized him. I imagine she was even disappointed with the disciples. They were supposed to have been his closest, most devoted followers, and they'd all abandoned him and were hiding behind locked doors as he suffered alone. It was a dark day. And the verse says that she came to the tomb, and she found... That the stone had been rolled away from the entrance. Now on her way to the, to the tomb, she had wondered, how am I going to move this stone? Uh, her and a couple of other ladies. But I, I think that we can learn a lot from her experience about how God can lift us out of darkness and despair and disillusionment. I'd like to just go through this passage verse by verse and see how it unfolded. Because up until this point, we have to remember that Jesus' body had to be buried very quickly because it was near the Sabbath and so they they had to to just do it fast. So he had died and they didn't have time to properly anoint his body. In Jewish culture, they didn't believe in embalming the body. So what they would do is they would wrap it up in linens similar to like what you would think of like a mummy and they would pack spices within the the wrappings to... uh, to, to help the body and you know, prevent smell and things like that. And they didn't have time to do all that. The women were on their way to the tomb to do that. They knew that there had been a stone placed in front of the, the entrance of the tomb. That was common to keep predators out and that sort of thing. What they did not know is that Pilate had ordered the tomb the, to be sealed. So they would have poured a wax around it, put a, some strips of leather in the, the Roman uh, insignia on it, and then there were stationed two Roman guards there to make sure that nobody was going to mess with his body. It was very important to Rome that Jesus stay dead, that no one try to 
try to say that, oh, something's happened, he's, he's resurrected, and they didn't want anyone stealing his body, so they, they had done that. Now, we know from Matthew's gospel that before the women got there, there was a violent earthquake, and the stone was rolled away from the tomb. The soldiers were put into a, like a coma at the resurrection, and when they woke up, they panicked, because it was their job to make sure that nothing happened to Jesus' body, that nobody tried any funny business, and, and so what they did, they panicked, and they ran to the chief priest to tell him what had happened. And you would think there'd be, in all this confusion, they'd be trying to figure things out. But what they, instead of arresting these soldiers or saying, hey, you guys didn't do your job, so now you're going to be crucified because you didn't do what we told you to do. Instead, the Jewish authorities bribed them, gave them a huge sum of money, and said, if anybody asks you what happened, just tell them that you were asleep. And while you were asleep, the disciples came and stole the body. And that false narrative circulated among the Jewish people who were skeptics for quite some time, even though it was totally implausible. Verse 2 says that Mary, she, she ran and found Simon Peter in her confusion. She's not knowing what happened. She ran and found uh, Peter and the other disciple, and she said, They have taken the Lord's body out of the tomb. We don't know where they have put him. And she jumps to a wrong conclusion here in just her in her state, she's not sure what's happened, and in this moment she assumed someone must have stolen his body. I don't know what happened. Something's happened, though. She was stunned, and by leaving the tomb early, Mary missed out on several key pieces of evidence that would have convinced her in this moment that Jesus' body hadn't been stolen, but that he'd come back to life. I was listening to another pastor the other day, and he said something so interesting. I said this, if you were here, uh, if you were here Friday night, um, I mentioned this. But as I, it's just really, really been striking me. He says, you know, whenever I'm talking to someone who does not believe in God, you know, they're, they're, just, they're, not, they're not a Christian, I always ask them this question. If you discovered that Christianity were absolutely true, if there was some way that we could say, oh, here's irrefutable evidence that Christianity is absolutely 100% true, would you be a Christian? And he says, the way that they answer that, if they hesitate... Or they say, well, no, and I, I know it's not a head problem, it's a heart problem. It's not a problem of information or what they know or what they might need to know. There's, they don't want to be, they don't want there to be a God. They want to be in control. There's something within each one of us, and we kind of want to call the shots. I think a lot of us, that's why we struggle with faith, is because we say, why doesn't God do things the way that I think he should do them? And Easter is a vivid reminder that we have a Savior that, is, that has conquered death. If Jesus Christ came back to life after being crucified, I'm going to believe every word that he ever said. I know a lot of people who have been Bible college graduates. I went to school with people who we, we took the same classes. We had the same kind of experiences. We learned about Scripture and you know, God's plan for our lives and those sort of things. And some of them went into ministry. And somewhere along the way, something happened where they have just abandoned their faith. How can that happen? How, how could that be? It can't be a problem with information because they got more information than most people. They've studied the scripture in a way that a lot of us will never, will never study. What happens? The problem with their heart. They don't want to be accountable to God. And so in our minds, we try to convince ourselves that he doesn't exist. And I try to justify why that must be true, and therefore I can live however I want. That's a huge mistake. There are so many historical pieces of evidence for the resurrection of Christ. 
I could probably mention a dozen or so, but I've just chosen a few for this morning. The first piece of evidence is the removal of the stone. And historically, we know that that was a fact, that that happened. H.C. Morrison was a skeptic who began to investigate the resurrection. And he wrote a book uh, as to why he became a believer. And it was titled, Who Moved the Stone? The soldiers aren't going to move the stone. They were paid and employed to, to stand there and guard it. As a matter of fact, it's interesting that they were bribed because I'm surprised the soldiers weren't executed for allowing something to happen no matter what it was because it was their job to make sure that nothing happened to the body of Jesus. The disciples aren't going to move the stone. They're hiding behind locked doors at this point. They weren't even there at the crucifixion. They're scared for their own skin. And the enemies of Jesus aren't going to move the stone. They wanted it to stay there. They wanted the body of Jesus to stay in the tomb. And if they took the body of Jesus, let's say that these Jewish leaders or whoever it was that went in there, broke in and stole the body, all they had to do to crush this movement was produce the body. Say, no, he's still dead. Look, here he is. But they couldn't do it because their claims uh, that the body was stolen were false. So who moved the stone? The only logical conclusion is that the angel of God did as the Bible tells us. You look at the next few verses. Verse 3, it says, Peter and the other disciples started out for the tomb and they were both running, but the other disciple outran Peter. And I think it's funny. This is written by John. John's referring to himself. I just thought it was a little bit of showboating there. Hey, I was faster than Peter. Just wanted everybody to know that. And he reached the tomb first. He stooped and looked in, and he saw the linen wrappings lying there, but he didn't go in. Then Simon Peter arrived after me, way after me. He was slow. And went inside. He also noticed the linen wrappings lying there, while the cloth that had covered Jesus' head was folded up and lying apart from the other wrappings. Then the disciple who had reached the tomb first, just want to make sure I get it in there again, also went in, and he saw and believed. For until then, they still hadn't understood the scriptures that said, Jesus must rise from the dead. Then they went home. There's another piece of evidence there, the grave clothes. What grave robber is going to take the time to unwrap a body and leave the clothes there and then take the body? That doesn't make sense. And besides that, when Jesus was buried, we're told in John 19 that Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus were the ones who wrapped Jesus' body with 75 pounds of spices. See, the women were on the way to the tomb, but they didn't realize that that had happened already. Joseph and Nicodemus had already wrapped his body and 75 pounds of spices were wrapped with him. And when Peter and John looked in the tomb, what they saw with those linens and all those spices, it was just collapsed. He wasn't unwrapped. He was resurrected. He had passed through the, the grave clothes. It would have been hollowed out like a cocoon. And they immediately knew, knew something's happened here. Jesus has been resurrected. Mary was not there at that moment. She was probably exhausted from running. She'd run from the tomb back to Jerusalem to tell them. Then she's going back. She's going back and forth. She hadn't kept up with, with uh, you know, speed demon there, John and Peter. And by the time that she got back to the tomb, they were already gone again. And so she sat there and wept. She's still confused as to what happened. In verse 11, it says that she was standing outside the tomb crying. And as she wept, she stooped and looked in. And she saw two white-robed angels, one sitting at the head and the other sitting at the foot of the place where the body of Jesus had been lying. Dear woman, why are you crying? The angels asked her. 
because they have taken away my Lord, she replied, and I don't know where they've put him. She turned to leave and saw someone standing there. It was Jesus, but she didn't recognize him. Why didn't she recognize Jesus? Some say, well, it's probably because you know, it was sunrise and the sun was in her eyes and she, she couldn't see. Or you know, maybe she'd been crying so much that she just couldn't see through her, her, her tear-filled eyes. But there were a number of times after Jesus had risen that he was with people that they didn't immediately recognize him. Uh, he had been changed somehow, which is really encouraging to me. Because the Bible says that when we are resurrected when we're given new bodies that we will all be changed and that we will be like him which i'm assume means i'm going to look better than what i look now and these people you know they weren't expecting to see jesus alive mary she'd seen him die she had watched the flesh being torn off of him and 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 if he had been changed so much she may not have immediately recognized him until she heard his voice and maybe saw some of his mannerisms i have to admit a few weeks ago i ran into some old friends from college i hadn't seen in 20 years it's been a long time since i ran into these people and uh, i I wasn't expecting that you know it's one of those situations where they don't live in this city and i just happened to bump into them and i wasn't expecting to see them and at first i kind of had to do like a double take to make sure that i'm not crazy you know that that is that person i wasn't sure and it really wasn't until i heard their voice to make sure that it was them, and, but I'll tell you, they had changed a lot in 20 years. And, and in fact, they had, they had aged so much that they didn't recognize me. Their eyes must have been bad. Somebody said, yeah, right. <laughs> we don't know what it was for sure, but there was something a little bit different about Jesus. Verse 15 says, dear, dear woman, why are you crying? Jesus asked her, who is it that you're looking for? And she thought he was the gardener. Now, I think that is fascinating. She didn't think he was a soldier. She didn't think he was, you know, some other random person. She thought he was the gardener. I think it's interesting that, you know, Jesus is referred to as the second Adam. You know, the first Adam that that God put in the garden to tend the garden, to watch over it, and he messed it up. And here is Jesus, the second Adam, coming to to fix it and put it back, straighten it out. But she thought he was the gardener. Sir, she said, if you have taken him away, please tell me where you've put him. I'll go and get him. In verse 16, Jesus said, Mary. And she turned to him and cried out, Rabboni, which is Hebrew for teacher. It's sort of a personal term. In that moment, she knew. She heard his voice. Maybe she saw some, Maybe it was something in his eyes. Maybe the way that he motioned towards her. I'm not sure. But whatever it was, it was like, I can't believe my eyes. And all in, in that moment, she realized he's alive. I can't imagine the feeling that she had to have experienced. She watched him suffer and die. She was there. She saw the unbelievable things. And, and you try to imagine what you would do. If you're her in this moment, you watch someone, you've been there at the side of the hospital bed and watch them breathe their last and you grieve and you have a funeral service for them. All your friends come into town and you walk by the casket and then one day you're at their grave and you turn around with tear-filled eyes and there they are. What would you do? I know what I would do. I'd grab a hold of them. You know, I mean, it'd be the hug of all hugs. I'd, I'd hold on to them for dear life and that's exactly what she does. She realizes it's him, and I think she just jumped into his arms. And you see this moment. I think Jesus probably was laughing. 
You know, sometimes we read scripture and it sort of seems flat. We've got to remember the human element. I think he probably was laughing and when he said these words, don't, don't cling to me. Because I haven't ascended to my father yet. He said, come on, well, i still got stuff to do, Mary. I can't stand here all day. I know you'd rather me just stay right here. We just stay right here in this moment. But go find my brothers and tell them that I'm ascending to my father and to your father, to my God and your God. And understandably, Mary didn't want to let go. It had been the darkest night of her soul. And now it's the brightest, most joyous moment of her life. She wanted to hold on. You ever had that experience? You say, I just wish we could stay here forever. Those mountaintop moments. There's a moment like that with Jesus in the New Testament. He was up on the Mount of Transfiguration. He'd gone up there with a few of his disciples. And they had this amazing moment. And he just, he's, he's bright like lights and all these things happen. And, and they say, oh, why don't we just stay here, Lord? We'll build some temples right here. And we will stay right here on this mountain. But they can't stay. You can't stay there. You've got you to gotta come back down. You're not meant to hold on to a spiritual high forever. Oswald Chambers said, we were not made for the mountains, for sunrises, or for the other beautiful attractions in life. Those are simply intended to be moments of inspiration. We are made for the valley and the ordinary things of life. And that is where we have to prove our stamina and strength. Those are the moments when Jesus walks with us. And he's doing something in us that's greater. You know, mountaintop moments are wonderful. But we can't stay there. We've got to get back to where God wants us to be. I know there are a lot of people here today. Maybe you feel like you're in the middle of a valley right now. You're in a dark night of the soul. You may be discouraged about something in your life or something in your family or something with your health. I would encourage you to do what Mary did that morning. She went to go find Jesus. She put herself in a place where maybe something could happen. She didn't know what would happen when she got there. She assumed the stone would still be there. She didn't know how they were going to move the stone. She's even more confused when the stone's not there, when the body's gone. She's, she's just beside herself, but she kept going back to that place. And here's my challenge to you. In those moments when you don't know where to turn, at the risk of sounding trite, look to Jesus. When you don't know where else to look, when you don't know where else to turn, Turn to the Lord. Set out to find him. Make it your mission that I'm going to continue to search and I'm going to continue to seek and I'm going to continue to put myself in his presence because the strangest thing happens when you do that. And I'm, living, I'm a living testament to this. Strangest thing happens when you put yourself in the presence of God. When you set out to find Jesus... That's where Jesus finds you. See, some of you, you may be disillusioned in here today. You may be, I don't know, I don't know where I'm at. I'm just here because Grandma wanted us to come. I want to tell you, there's something, that, there's something really amazing that happens when you can finally get past your pride. When you work through that, you finally come to the moment where you're at the end of yourself. And you say, okay, I, I, let, me, let me turn to God. Let's see, let's see if he'll have something for me. That's where we meet him. That's where you discover that he's there for you. He's closer than a brother. Mary went there distraught, not knowing what to do, and Jesus met her there. And then see what she does next. Verse 18, Mary Magdalene found the disciples, and she told them, I have seen the Lord. She's got this great message that she gave them. When Jesus has changed your life, 
Don't keep it to yourself. It's way too good to keep to yourself. Sharing your faith is the most powerful and rewarding experience you're ever going to have in this life. There's nothing like it. When you see someone that you know, a friend, a family, or someone that you've shared, and all you, it's not complicated. It's just this is what God has done for me. I'm not trying to be fancy with my words. I'm not trying to prove any kind of point. I'm not trying to set up some kind of theological argument. I'm just telling you, this is what God has done for me. Revelation chapter 12 tells us how powerful that is. It says that I heard a loud voice shouting across the heavens. It has come at last, salvation and power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ. For the accuser of our brothers and sisters. That's the term given to the devil. He's the accuser. You know, it's funny that that, that term, we think about, well, what what does Satan want to do? What does he do? How does he work in our lives? He's the tempter. He tries to draw us away from the good things of God. He wants to convince us of lies, those sort of things. But you know the other thing that he does? He accuses us. Where does guilt come from? The feeling of guilt. It doesn't come from the Lord. It's the accuser of our brethren. He's been thrown down to the earth, the one who accuses them before our God day and night. And they, which is talking about us, here you are. Did you realize that you're in the Bible? He's talking about you. You have defeated him by the blood of the Lamb and by their testimony. What's your testimony? It's your story. It is, this is what God has done for me. The Bible tells us that when you do that, it's the one weapon that you have to defeat the devil. There's nothing he can do about it. There is nothing that he can do about that. And there's nothing that anyone else can do about that either. Because people can argue about what is real and what's not. But the one thing that no one can ever argue with is your story. This is my experience. And this is what Jesus has done in my life. And in the end of the book of John, if you know the story, you know after Jesus came back to life, he appeared to the disciples, even to Thomas, who who wouldn't believe that he was alive. Until Jesus said, Thomas, here, look, look with your, feel the the nail holes in my hands. And and then he appeared to hundreds of other people, many of whom, by the way, went to their own deaths because they would not recant. You think about somebody on death row right now, the people that are waiting to die, sentenced to death. If, If all they had to do was say, oh, by the way, I made it up, never mind, and they could be freed. Our jails would be empty, folks. (laughs) If people could get out of jail by just saying, oh yeah, I made it up. No, I didn't do it. There'd be no one sitting in prison today. And and these people who went to their deaths, many of them horrific deaths, crucifixion and and, and all kinds of torture, none of them were willing to recant that they had seen Jesus alive. They're executed by their governments. And at the end of the book of John, he writes that the disciples saw Jesus do many other miraculous signs in addition to the ones recorded in this book. But these are written so that you may continue to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing in Him, you will have life by the power of His name. And that is what is so great about today. That by believing and trusting in the powerful name of Jesus, you will have life. Now, if you don't know what that means today, or you've got some questions about it, that's all right. That's okay. We want you to know that, that we're here for you. It's a safe place for you to be and to be questioning. That's all right. And, and we have people that, that are, are here that want to be available to you. We're, I'm just going to tell you right up front, we don't have everything figured out. And in a lot of ways, we're all still stumbling towards Jesus. In a lot of ways, I'm still, I'm still banging my head against the wall and saying, God, help me understand this. This doesn't make sense to me. 
but we know the one who does know. We have a relationship with the one who, who's got it all figured out and straightened out. And so if you want somebody to pray with you or you want somebody to talk about what it looks like to invite Jesus into your life, uh, we want to invite you to stick around after the service for a few minutes. We've got a space out in the lobby. Uh, it says next steps. There'll be some volunteers and some staff out there that you can say, hey, I just need somebody to talk to. I don't know what to do next. And they'll be there for you. But we're so glad that you shared this morning with us. Let me pray for you and we'll be dismissed. Lord, I thank you for this day that we, we recognize and we set apart as the best day in all of human history. We just remembered two days ago the worst day, the darkest day in human history. And, and it's amazing what can happen in just a short amount of time. Lord, the resurrection of Jesus Christ we know is the, provides hope for our lives. And not just this life, but the life to come. And God, I'm, I'm reminded that in, in such a short amount of time, we can go from the worst to the best. Remind us today that that's true in our lives as well. Some of us in here may be carrying some heavy baggage. Maybe there's a lot of things in our minds and on our hearts that are weighing us down. But remind us that you are a God who specializes in resurrecting things that were dead and broken. Do that for us, Lord. We thank you for Jesus, our resurrected Savior. And it's in his name I pray. Amen. God bless you guys. Happy Easter. We'll see you next week.